Hello, Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new Marvel Comics on sale September 1st, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Holy moly, it's September. <laughs> Very exciting. A whole lot going on. One, happy Marvel Studios, Shang-Chi, and Legend of the Ten Rings week. It is in theaters this week, so go get yourself some tickets I've seen it and I loved it. It's great. It's a lot of fun. And I'm very excited to see it in a big theater with other folks and throw some popcorn at my face <laughs> in a theater. So speaking of Shang-Chi, we have on our guest this week, the writer of the current Shang-Chi comics, Gene Luen Yang, who is wonderful. He is a triple D, a ding dang delight. Oh, yeah. uh, but Tucker, we want to give a big congratulations to Megan Bagala, who is part of our show here at Marvel's Pull List, because she's celebrating her one-year anniversary of working on the show with us. I am so excited that we can pay tribute to Megan. For listeners that might not know, you might have heard Megan's name at the end of the show in the credits sometimes, but Megan just works so hard uh, to bring this show to you every single week so you can get all the fun insights that we have uh, and all the great interviews that we can bring you. So huge, 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 huge shout out to Megan. Go go find Megan on Twitter at Megan Bagala, B-A-G-A-L-A, um, and say thanks and congrats um, because uh, what a huge... What a huge asset and what a delight to work with Megan. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, just she's terrific. We're very excited. We're very happy to have her on the team. Um, I lost my train of thought, but I did want to also say that one thing we want to start doing is shouting out comic shops. I think yeah. it's really cool. Shout out the first comic shop, which is Jasmine's shop, Challengers in Chicago. I've been to Challengers many years ago when I was, I believe when I was still going to Chicago Comic Con or the Wizard World Chicago, um, visiting some shops around there. So great shop. Definitely love that. If you have a comic shop you want us to shout out, then please let us know. Use hashtag Marvel's pull list, or you can just at any of us at Agent M or Tucker Marcus or Megan Bagala or jasmine at j-a-s-m-i-e-s-t send us any of your comic shops we want to shout them out i will shout out all yeah comics in harrison new york they're the one I, I go to most often when i'm going to buy some comics tucker where do you go shout out for me to uh the comic bug here a beautiful delightful little 10 minute walk that i love to take all the time here in uh, culver city so yeah love to local comic shops yeah. All right. We have to get into the show because every week we run down our picks of the week from the new comics on sale. We've got three of them this week. Then we'll give out some awards. Remember this time, Tucker will pick <laughs> yep. uh, an award for us to give out to some of our other high moments throughout the week in comics. We'll talk about what's hitting the collections and Marvel Unlimited, and then we will get back into our conversation with Gene Luen Yang. That's a little bit later. Right now, it is time for our picks of the week. First up is Dark Ages, number one. I feel like we've been waiting for this for 12 years, for like 50 years, 100 years. It's a long time coming, and it is terrific. It is written by Tom Taylor, art by Ivan Coelho, colors by Brian Reber, letters by VCs Joe Sabino. Reading that creator list is like, bam, 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 bam. So good. That is a stacked squad making a comic, and it shows there was... What was it? Free Comic Book Day 2020, where we got a little sample of this universe, I think. We got like a eight or ten page story it was somewhere earlier. Or maybe I just read it somewhere. I don't know. But that we, we got a sampling of what this world is. 
but it's not a what if per se, but it's this, it's just this great standalone story in which the lights go out. Literally something happens and we find out in this issue what it is. Something happens that causes pretty much all machines and electrical things and mechanisms to stop working, which has huge repercussions for the world and superheroes and supervillains. And so this first issue gives you how and the why and the what and all things going on. And then at the end of the issue sends you off into here's where we go from here. And there were moments in here. I was like, gasp, it's a Tom Taylor book. So there's going to be characters. We love horribly dying characters. We love being amazing. It's going to be funny. It's heartfelt. And then shout out to Stormbreaker, Ivan Coelho, who good Lord, I feel like he was doing so much Venom work and we loved him, appreciated him, but it's been a little bit since we've gotten an interior issue from Ibam and it's so, so good. His action, his uh, facial expressions, the acting, just the big moments alongside those little personal moments. There's characters like crying and really emoting here. And because of just the amalgam of everything that's going on, it really does connect so, so well. I absolutely loved this issue. It's a blast. I'm very excited to see where we go from here. Also, got an appearance by the Living Tribunal, my favorite big yellow boy. So cool. I love it. All right, heads up. Look out, folks, because I got a late audible call dun, here. Dun, dun. I was flipping through our books this week, and I was reminded of who the star is of Avengers number 48. And I said, hold on, this has got to be my pick this week. The issue is brought to you by Jason Aaron and Javier Garone with colors by David Curiel and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. And who is the star of this ish? But the man, the one, the only, Ken Hale, my fave, the best, the sweetie, the number one dude, the true brute, the greatest, the legend, Gorilla Man. It's a character that Jason Aaron has made incredible use of in recent years. And I think Jason is really just tapping into something that is totally inherent to Kenneth Hale. There's such a humanity to that character. There's a sort of quiet sadness to that character. There's a something of a Benjamin J. Grimm type quality to him, where he's clearly a thoughtful guy. He's in this body that sort of contrasts with his mind and who he is as a person, all of these things, how he interacts with the world around him. That's not really what this issue is about, but that's all packed in there. That's all baked into any story that stars Gorilla Man. But the story that we're telling here is totally, totally huge and fascinating and just so well earned. This is World War She-Hulk Part 3, and we have most recently been introduced to the Winter Hulk, which is so cool. And this is another one of those things like, like I said, Jason has been doing so much great work here and there, just giving us a slow feed of great Gorilla Man issues. Jen Walters has been such a big part of this Avengers run, and there's been so much incredible character work that's gone into Jen that I've just been such a big fan of. And obviously, right alongside that, given where we are at this point, the Winter Guard, that's been another huge part of Jason's story here, but also looking at something like Heroes Reborn, just his work across titles and across stories. So where we've ended up here at this moment, 
in World War She-Hulk, it really just feels so earned. That was kind of a big theme that I felt this week across multiple books. It was like, wow, we've really, really worked hard to get here in the best way. It's just such a satisfying moment. It's such a satisfying read where, you know, we're still in the midst of this story. Really, there's so many questions that are posed here, so much action and so much story yet to be told. But seeing these beats hit, seeing these moments come together, seeing different characters that have sort of come together in this like water skiing human pyramid that somehow Jason and company are pulling off these acrobatics (laughs) is the coolest and the best thing. And I love it so much. And really where we land here at the end of this issue, I just think is so cool and so perfect. And again, continues to surprise and break your heart and give you goosebumps and do so many things all at the same time that I just love so much. Yeah, so there's a couple of big stars in this issue. If you're a Jen Walters fan, you must be reading World War She-Hulk. Good God. If you're a Gorilla Man fan, dive back in right here. Avengers 48, what a series. What a run. So happy to be sad at times (laughs) in this story. It's great. Happy to be said, indeed. Uh, you know, there's, look at the rest of the books. There are five more books that could have been yeah. another pick of the week for me. Um, but the one that had to be it was The Last Annihilation, Wiccan and Hulkling, number one. It couldn't be anything else, truly. We love Wiccan, we love Hulkling, and we love writer Anthony Oliveira, who is proving once again he has these characters down so pat. Art in here by Jan Basildua, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg, letters and production by VCs Ariana Marr. The Wiccan Hulkling saga continues, and we were talking about it before we started rolling. Jasmine, our producer, was just like, I want more than just a one shot. And I agree. I feel like these have been amazing pilots for what we need. And we need Anthony to write stories that are just the ongoing saga of Wiccan and Hulkling, the greatest space couple in the universe. And it's so fun. This is a tie-in, a part of the Last Annihilation story in which Dormammu from the Dark Dimension has taken over Ego and trying to take over the entire universe. And he's doing it through cool magic and everything is terrible throughout the universe because he's using an infinite army of mindless ones to destroy and subjugate and and crush kill. But this issue sees both Billy and Teddy, our title heroes, separated. There's things going wrong. Swords are broken. Things need to be mended. We actually get three different stories sort of coming together as one throughout this. We get the story of how Billy and Teddy met, which is adorable. And I just like fleshes out so much more than we already had. It's beautiful. Then you got on top of that, uh, you've got what's going on with Billy, what's going on with Teddy and how there are different parts of the universe trying to stop Dormammu and how the friggin' power of love is the thing that saves the day. Because of course it is. Of course it has to be with these two. It is a big, awesome, weird action book as well as an incredibly sweet and tender romance book. It is funny it's got great moments with characters you didn't really think you you needed. Like there's moments with Hercules and uh, Marvel Boy where they're just adorable. And they're just like basically 
metaphorically running around pinching each other's butts in the middle of a giant war <laughs> and like like just being in love and like lust for each other and it's really funny it's really sweet you've got them going on you got wonderful brother sister moments like alternate dimension brother sister moments with hulkling and Philavel. there's so much to love in this issue i'm freaking super excited by jan too jan has continued to put out great work i think we, we recently had another book by jan basildua which was terrific but here because we have so many different sort of types of story going on from the quiet to young kids sort of finding each other, finding that they're falling in love with each other. Those moments are done so wonderfully and sweet. And you can tell like the blossoming love there to the big weird action with giant monsters and mythical stuff. It's friggin' terrific. Highly, highly recommend this. If you are a Wiccan and Hulkling fan, uh, if you like space comics, if you just like good comics, Check this out. It is The Last Annihilation, Wiccan and Hulkling, number one. So much good stuff this week and so much like just really earned stories being told in here. And as we jump into all the fresh floppies coming your way this week, we will be handing out the All Hail Kenneth Hale Award for the best moments in our books. And we're kicking it off with Captain Marvel number 32. It's one of those where... If you've been along for this ride for 32 issues, you get it. You've earned it. You're here. So many different threads coming into play. Where Carol is in her journey is so unique and it's so special and it's really rich and deep and just great storytelling from Kelly Thompson. There are like three, oh my God, what the hell moments in this issue <laughs> that I just love. This is totally one of those that I could have picked this week. And of, of course, it's so dramatic, but at the same time, it's so light on its feet and fun in classic Kelly Thompson fashion. Yeah. Uh, we've got a new issue of Demon Days. Peach Momoko just crushing it. This one is Demon Days Cursed Web, where we're continuing to follow Yuriko as she's trying to figure out her heritage and, and, and do some revenge and cool stuff. It's awesome. And it gets like incredibly violent at one point, which reminds me of classic manga, classic anime. And like you're watching something and then it's just like a character's eye is like sliced out of their head. Or then like their throat is cut. And it's, so it's like, it's very jarring, but it's all in this beautiful watercolor format. I can't wait for it, like the Demon Days Collected Edition to come together. It's going to be terrific. This one, the All Hail Kenneth Hale Award for Demon Days goes to the little eyeball that could flying out of a character's face in this issue. It is, I was just like, damn, we did that. It was great. Uh, more comeuppance and drama and wild stuff on the way in Hellions number 15 this week. This is one of those issues where it feels like this was inevitable. There is some stuff that, you know, I mean, Mr. Sinister has been sort of playing this chess game for these entire 15 issues, mostly keeping a handle on it. It looks like it's starting to slip away from him in a way that you... You love to see because it's happening to Mr. Sinister, but you hate to see because it's also going to happen to the rest of the Hellions. Seeing what goes down in this issue is it's another one of those things where it's just like, oh, my God, of course we had to end up here. On top of that, like really nasty monster issue, which I love to see. That's another thing that I just think makes perfect sense in this Hellions book. I am going to open a DM to our pal Vita Ayala in a second. 
to send her a note about our next book, which is New Mutants number 21, which I previously sent her a sad note because of things that she as the writer was doing to a character whom I absolutely adore. I won't say whether or not it's a good note to Vita or another sad note. You'll have to read the book to find out, but it is a tremendous friggin' issue. I will give my all hail Ken Hale to the final page of man, Rodri's drawing the nastiest Shadow King with big, toothy grin, scary, messed up, evil, evil, evil dude. I loved this issue. It's a big roller coaster. There's a lot going on. I don't want to spoil anything. All you need to know is that at one point, Magic. Ilyana, who's one of my favorite characters, pounds her fist into her palm of her hand like, let's do this. And then we get to see Shadow King. Next issue is going to be a barn burner. Yeah. All right. Next up, we have Sinister War number four. This is the conclusion of Sinister War. And boy, oh boy, do they leave it all out on the field. I mean, both the characters in the ish and the creators of the ish. My all hail can hail award goes to... The art team on this book in particular, Mark Bagley, Dio Neves, Marcelo Ferreira, and then on inks, Andrew Hennessy, Andy Owens, Dio Neves, and Marcelo Ferreira, alongside colorists Brian Reber uh, with Andrew Crossley, because good God, this issue, <laughs> I know that that's a lot of folks to be on an art team. One, it's totally seamless, but two, I still feel like this must have taken six months to put together because there are so many characters there's so much action there's so much carnage there's so many explosions there's so much rain there's so much going on in here and it's really a visual storytelling there's like shockingly little dialogue in this issue which is something i really enjoy specifically like at the conclusion of a story or the conclusion of a big action sequence like this so big big ending to sinister war here yeah. All right. We've got Star Wars, The High Republic, number nine out this week. This is the first chapter of Jedi No More. And as you get into this book, there's reasons why that's the title of the storyline. And some of the stuff that characters have to do in this issue really like pushes the whole Jedi business. And it's an interesting way to go with these characters. Of course, the uh, the High Republic is the time frame before everything goes dark at least at that point in you know the the original trilogy time frame cuz the Star Wars universe things go terrible a lot <laughs> like it's like it's like waves i guess that's that's just reality right like stuff is good stuff is bad stuff is good stuff is bad but in Star Wars here we get to see some some wild stuff i will give my all hail ken hail award to a hut there's something that happens in an appearance by a hut in this issue that is pretty gnarly all right, we're wrapping things up this week with not a conclusion itself, but a penultimate issue with Web of Spider-Man number four. We've been doing for one or two reading clubs here on the show, some reading of things like Champions, things like Reptile, some of the younger heroes. And I just think this series does a great job of expressing that youthful perspective in a way that really captures the spirit of that, but is also totally respectful of that at the same time. So my All Hail Ken Hail Award goes to to exactly that. These young heroes, how they're brought to the page by writer Kevin Shinnick in particular. I think it's simultaneously that thing of like all the action, all the drama you could wish for, but at the same time, it just has this lightness. It has this fun, classic, cozy comics feeling to it that I really just love. I could just curl up in a ball and read stories like this all day long. All right, 
That's what we have for our new issues coming to your local comic shop this week. Don't forget to get in touch with us. Hashtag Marvel's pull list. Add us. Please add us. Tell us about your favorite comic shops, where you're going every week to pick up these issues and more. And make sure while you're at it to say okay to read so we can uh, give you a shout out on the show. But aside from fresh floppies, we also, of course, have collections coming your way. And uh, if this is a, a more concise week with new individual issues, good God, we make up for it with collections. There's like three times as many collections hitting shelves as usual this week. So much to enjoy. I'm looking at Eternals Volume 1, Only Death is Eternal. I'm looking at uh, Volume 2 of Heroes Reborn, America's Mightiest Heroes, Volume 2 of Wolverine by Benjamin Percy, and so much more. Yeah, there's some really great stuff in there. Also great stuff on Marvel Unlimited this week. Issue 7 of Black Widow, issue 25 of Black Panther, Beta Ray Bill number 3, the first issue of Reptile, and we are getting close to the X-Men Hellfire Gala. Oh, and a bunch of Heroes Reborn issues. Ooh, if you don't have a Marvel Unlimited subscription, you are wrong. Get yourself <laughs> some MU, please. And while you're doing that, get on MU and read some Shang-Chi. Why, Tucker? Because we are chatting with writer of the last two volumes of Shang-Chi, Jean Luen Yang, who is so much fun, so insightful, such a great guy. So let's go jump into all that great action right now. All right, Tucker, let's get into it. Our guest this week is Gene Lun Yang. Gene, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, Gene, you look like you're in some sort of like ultra professional studio space right now. Like it looks like you've been filming behind the scenes interviews for multiple <laughs> projects for weeks. Where are you? I'm actually at my brother's house right now. And I do not have a room like this in my house, but this is like, he's a doctor. You know what I mean? He, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We grew up reading comics together, but he kind of you know, chose a legit profession. <laughs> and now he has this beautiful house and I'm in the craft room. My house does not have a craft room. I didn't even know what a craft room was until the very first time I visited him here. That's actually an, an interesting thing you mentioned, Gene, because just going in the most chronological way possible, you mentioned you grew up reading comics with your brother. Can you talk about when and where that happened, what you were reading, all that good stuff? Oh, yeah. I got my very first comic when I was in the fifth grade. It was from a local bookstore. They used to have those spinner racks in the corner, right? And it was actually a DC comic. It was a DC Comics Presents, I think it was number 57, starring Superman and the Atomic Knights. And after that, it kind of like blew my mind. So my brother's four years younger than me, and he kind of got into it too, right? As soon as I got into it. And pretty soon after that, I got to be honest, even though the very first comic that I bought was DC, we kind of became Marvel heads, you know? Um, so I'm old enough where like the first set of comics that I bought were from this event called Assistant Editors Month. So I feel like entering in at that time kind of made me think, oh, anything is kind of possible in the Marvel Universe. You know, anything can happen in these comics. I love that. Now, we are here to talk a little bit about Shang-Chi. We've had uh, the first series out that you wrote, and I think we've released three issues of the second volume. So you've been working on Shang-Chi for like a year-ish now. What's that process like? Yeah. How are you, how you feeling about the character? 
it's been a ton of fun to work on. You know, I think um, the creative team that I'm on has been great. Uh, Darren Shan, my my editor, he's amazing. You know, he's been with me from the very beginning. He was kind of the one that that asked me to pitch at the very beginning. And then he paired me up with DK Ruan, who is awesome. I think he's like, he's best at this kind of action that doesn't lose focus on the character. Like he's able to draw in a way where when Shang-Chi is punching somebody, he's also expressing something about his interior life, you know, which I think is hard to do. So it's, it's been a ton of fun. Folks, we're talking to a multiple Eisner Award nominee here. So congratulations on that, Gene. That's just incredible stuff and really, really excites me for the future of what you're going to bring to Marvel Comics as well. So I'm curious, do you remember when you first started reading Shang-Chi, when that character became on your radar, if you encountered the character in a different series or something, if you jumped into the uh, Shang-Chi series itself, where that began for you? I got to be honest, when I was a kid... I was not a Shang-Chi fan. I was, I was kind of the opposite, actually. So I grew up in an area where there was a small uh, minority of Asian American kids. And because of that, I think I went through a period of time where I was kind of, I was really self-conscious about being an Asian American, you know? And I went through a period where I was kind of embarrassed of my parents. And I, and I think this is true for a lot of kids, especially if your parents are immigrants, like regardless of where in the world they come from, just the fact that they speak differently, right? They speak with an accent. When you're a little kid, you're kind of embarrassed about it. So I went through that period of time and I just did not want to be at my local comic book shop being like the Asian American kid picking up the comic with like a, a Chinese guy on the cover. You know, it, it felt like I'd be emphasizing everything that I was trying to run away from. I would be emphasizing everything that made me different. So it wasn't until way later, like I was in my 20s, that I actually read a Shang-Chi comic and it was the Shang-Chi comic that was part of the Marvel Max line. It was drawn by Paul Gulasi and he had this like awesome like leather jacket and stuff. And I liked it. I, I thought it was a good comic. And I thought it also showed that the creators of that comic really like loved him, you know, like, like there was a lot of love and care that was put into that comic. But I, I still don't think I was really that big of a fan. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, like Darren and I talk about this as well. Like we, we both had this weird relationship with him. And it sort of mirrored our relationship with who we are and our, our own heritage. So working on this comic, in a lot of ways, it's like getting to know this character, getting to know his legacy, and also kind of figuring something out for myself about how I feel about my family and all that kind of stuff. What I think is cool is you know working through all that stuff. And also in a time where now we have a Shang-Chi movie coming out yeah. and the movie is so good and the world and the characters are so interesting and well drawn but at the same time what you're doing the story that you and, and dk and darren and everybody are doing is so different and so of itself that they work side by side but they don't contradict each other in the sense that like one can be a fan and enjoy these stories and it's a multitude of versions of a character and now having a character that can speak to kids who don't always get to see themselves in their comic books or on the on the big screen is action superheroes in Marvel movies. It's pretty amazing time right now. It must be fun for you to even be able to think about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, I remember being a little kid in the 80s and wanting to see a superhero movie and there was just no such thing, right? 
and now it's just like everywhere. I, I have kids and I'm jealous of my kids sometimes because they have all this stuff around them that I just didn't have as a kid. And I think what you said about seeing somebody who, who reflects me in some way on the big screen it is a big deal. I, I think even if I didn't know it when I was a kid, it was definitely something I wanted. I think one of the things that we're seeing with, with Marvel and really with both of the big American superhero universes is this effort to kind of show that these stories are for everybody. Like the superhero universe is for everybody and everybody can be a hero, regardless of who your parents are or who you might love or anything else. Everybody can be a superhero. And I think, I think it's great. I think it's more reflective of the world that we live in today. You know, there's an added element to speaking to you, Gene, about all of these things, because you're not just an incredible acclaimed comic book writer, but you're also an academic. And so you have those eyes on it as well. Of course, I would imagine when you're writing something like Shang-Chi, you're writing it with character in mind. You're writing it with the plot in mind. You're writing with story in mind. You're trying to tell a good story. Is there a part of you that has that academic, analytical side of you that's sort of sitting next to you at the desk as you're writing? Or is all that fuel sourced from the same tank? Yeah, I think how you described it is exactly right, Tucker. I When I'm writing a, a comic, the main thing I want is I want to try to tell a good story, right? I want to keep the reader with me from the first page to the last. I want to keep them turning pages. And we think a lot about page turns. I think most comic book writers and comic book artists, we're always trying to figure out like, how are we going to get our reader to spend the calories necessary to turn <laughs> that page, you know? So that's first and foremost. But I was a high school teacher for 17 years. And I don't think I actively try to approach things as a teacher, especially when I'm writing comics. But I do feel like it, it's just kind of in me, you know, I was in the classroom for so long. And even if I don't mean to, a little piece of that is going to come out. There is this writer that I really admire. His name is Brian McDonald. And he talks about how underneath every story is like this armature, right? It's like the skeleton of the story. And the skeleton of the story has to be about survival information. It has to tell you how to survive life, maybe physically or maybe like spiritually, but it has to give you some kind of survival information. And I think there's something kind of teacherly about that, right? Like you're like when I was a high school teacher, I was trying to give my kids survival information. So I think there is overlap between like the academic and, and the entertainment side. But I generally try to not be conscious of the academic side when I'm writing. Uh, I wanted to go back to what you mentioned, sort of the art of the page turn. Was there something for you as a reader or was it as I started getting into the work as a creator where you really started to hone in on that part of the craft because that's something we honestly tucker you and i don't talk about that enough we talk about the last page moments and and sometimes those things but that art of the page turn and the the reason to keep you flipping that is such a crucial part of our art form yeah i remember reading something that john burns said about how he really pays a lot of attention to that final panel, you know, because he wants you to, to turn that page. And I remember, I think I read it somewhere. I think I read it in an interview. And as soon as I read it, I thought back to the comics of his that I had read when I was a kid. And I realized that that totally works, you know? And I think a lot of the, the people that we now think of as greats, when you look at their work, they totally do that. Um, one of the things about comics is that you don't really have actual time to work with. 
right? It's not like a movie where you have actual time to work with. And the page turn is kind of like an approximation of that. It's an approximation of time. It's one of the only ways you can really surprise your reader, right, is right after that page turn. So I'm definitely a big fan of, of thinking that through as I'm writing. Um, you started self-publishing comics at the very beginning of your comic book career. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Do you have a perspective on the learning curve? Are you able to sort of judge how you've improved as a writer over the years since those self-publishing days? Is that something you have an awareness of? Is that something that, you know, you can look back on, a, on an older work of yours and go, oh, wow, I still hadn't figured this, 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 and this out yet. And I see the improvements that I've made. And is that something you're aware of in the present as well of like, who knows, in 10 years, I'll look back and be like, oh, you know, maybe I missed this, this. Are you kind of a critical person that way of your own work? Yeah, I, I generally hate looking at my old <laughs> stuff because I just always want to change it. I feel like I've changed, like my voice has changed, my writing voice has changed, and I just constantly want to edit my old stuff. So I generally, unless like I'm reading for an event or something, I, I try not to look at it. One of the reasons I actually like working at a place like Marvel is the collaboration, you know? So I came out of independent comics, I came out of self-publishing comics and also graphic novels. And in those settings, you're a lot more independent, which means you have a lot more control. And that's generally a really good thing. I like having control. But when you're working in a more collaborative setting, like at Marvel, where you're working with other artists and inkers and creative people and editors, you kind of get a sense of how other people approach this, right? How everybody else approaches comics. This one thing that we love. And I feel like doing that has really allowed me to grow. Like, I really appreciate the notes that I get from Darren and from Kat, who are the two editors that I'm working with right now. And I think in a lot of ways, an editor, like a really good editor, they think deeply about way more comics than your average creator does, right? Because they're like constantly working on a, like a billion different books. So they're constantly in the middle of figuring out story and figuring out art. And they're also like have like a really in-depth insight into multiple people's styles. So in that way, a, a really good editor can kind of teach you something that they've learned from having this bird's eye view of the comic book industry. I feel like I am getting that from Darren, from a lot of his notes. It's been awesome. Um, yeah, let's dive into that a little bit about the creation of the first series and then into the second. You know, you said Darren reached out to you for this. What was that process like and how did you get to really like it's a big reestablishment of who Shang-Chi is and what his place in the Marvel Universe is? Yeah, I mean, he wanted Shang-Chi to feel like he had more of a place within this universe, right? He wanted him to feel more established and he wanted the miniseries to kind of do that. But outside of that, it was like he just asked me to pitch, you know, and I, I pitched him something. He liked it overall, but we went through a couple of rounds before like I actually signed up and, and we did that miniseries. But that was the whole impetus behind the whole thing was like, we want Shang-Chi to feel like he's part of the Marvel universe, that he's established, that he has like a supporting cast and he's really grounded. When this started bubbling up and becoming a, a potential piece of work for you, had you already gone back at this point in your comic book career, had you already gone back and done some... Shang-Chi reading from decades past, you know, all the way through the present, or was it sort of a, a crunch moment where you're like, okay, let me go out and do some research and see if there's seeds of things that I find interesting, maybe something like that. 
Yeah, I mean, he he sent me like as soon as he asked me to pitch, he sent me a bunch of those old Shang Chi comics as digital files, and I went through them. And I really appreciated the creativity that those early creative teams put into the fight scenes, especially. It really felt like they were trying to experiment with paneling and and pacing and all all that kind of stuff. And I think that was the draw of those early Shang Chi comics was like check out how these fight scenes are portrayed. They're portrayed in these really amazing ways, you know, really artful ways. So that was something that DK and I talked about pretty early on that we wanted to bring into our version. The biggest piece that would not fly in, you know, 2021 is like who his dad is, you know? His dad is essentially like the ultimate, you know, yellow peril kind of figure, the the ultimate Chinese stereotype. But at the same time, like the Marvel universe isn't like the DC universe. So the DC universe has had these hard resets where they can they can kind of rejigger everything. But in Marvel, I feel like there's like soft reboots, but you still have to figure out how all the old stuff, even the problematic stuff kind of still fits in, right? So we spent a lot of time on that. And ultimately we decided we wanted to respect this relationship that he had with his dad, even though we're gonna tweak his dad to emphasize other characteristics. We still want him to be like this supervillain. And the whole dynamic is he's trying to be a hero, even though his dad was a villain. So much of that first series is about the the history with his father and that legacy and, and everything that comes with it. But the title of the collection and the, and the overall story that we see is Brothers and Sisters. And I find it very interesting because I have three half brothers and sisters that two of them I only got to know when I was like 27. And, you know, I immediately connected to these relationships with people who have, there's a blood relation, but there's something so different about you, about how you were raised. But then there are some things that are so similar. And so like these little connections. And um, I really appreciated that in this story and, and how that all worked out. And I really fleshing out Shang-Chi's family was to me the most rewarding part of of this first limited series. That's awesome. I mean, I mean, that really did come out of a conversation that I had early on with Darren. It wasn't just us two, too. I think there's some folks in the Marvel office that were like, we should give him some siblings, some half siblings, right? His dad is supposed to have been alive for 300 years. He most likely had a lot of kids and we should bring some of those kids in. (laughs) But I also think like for... Asian Americans in particular, children of immigrants in general, family plays such a big role in our lives, right? Like like often there's this tension between like the surrounding culture that we find ourselves in and what our family wants. So I really want to play with that too. One of the things that I feel like sort of goes out the door, especially when we're talking about these books from the 70s, especially when we're talking about these sort of retrograde visions of these characters in specific times, one of the first things that I feel like is lost is like a sense of real humanity in these characters. And I just feel like there's a little bit more of a 2D nature to a character like this at a time like that. So I'm curious, as you were diving into this, as you were becoming invested, as you started fleshing out the story, fleshing out these characters, starting to explore the the character arcs that, that they were going through, and as well of like, you know, introducing the family side of things, what the additive nature of that was to Shang-Chi as a character himself. I'm just curious to hear what your vision of 
this character is as a person? Like, how would you describe Shang-Chi as you're writing him? What sort of is perennial to this character and what lasts through to this day and feels like, you know, is worthy of telling a modern story with a character in a, in a lead like this? And what did you feel like was a challenge to diving into a pretty character-based story like like the ones you've been telling? It actually kind of sounds like you were sitting in on one of our editorial meetings. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about all of that, right? Like we mm-hmm. talked about how, I think after reading a bunch of those old Shang-Chi comics, it felt like his appeal was he was meant to be a character that you looked at as mm-hmm. opposed to a character that you wanted to be. You know, like the, the appeal of the comic was check out this Chinese Kung Fu master and look at all the crazy stuff that he can do. Not imagine yourself as this character and and try to uh, relate to his emotions, which is kind of weird that it's a Marvel comic because I feel like Marvel is all about that. Like Spider-Man is the quintessential Marvel character. And Spider-Man is not somebody that you're supposed to look at. Spider-Man is somebody you're supposed to be. Like you're supposed to relate to him. When he's run out of quarters for the laundromat, you're supposed to relate to that, right? So that's what we wanted. We wanted to kind of be true to what we thought of as the Marvel ethos and make Shang-Chi into somebody that you wanted to be, that you could relate to. That's one of the reasons why early on we decided we wanted to have that inner monologue and make that the captions. Um, We wanted to emphasize the friction between him and his siblings and his his family in general, because I think all of us can relate to family friction. And the way I really thought of Shang-Chi is he's somebody who really wants to be good, but he's freaked out. Like deep down inside, he's kind of freaked out because he comes from this bloodline that is tainted with evil. And deep down inside, he's worried. He's worried that like, that's innate in him and that if he kind of lets go of control, it's going to come out. But because of that, I think he's a little bit more reserved than some of his siblings and some of the other heroes in the Marvel Universe, but it's all because he's like a little bit worried. He's a little bit worried that evil is innate in him and that he's gonna, it's gonna come out. I actually got that from my own life, to be honest. I mean, not that my parents were evil, but (laughs) as I've gotten older, I've heard my dad's words come out of my mouth, Mm. right? And it's weird because he speaks in Chinese, but I hear the same thing coming out of my mouth at my kids. (laughs) Like that's sort of the the impetus behind Shang-Chi. I think trying to make the character relatable in the Marvel fashion has worked out so well. Cause that what you're describing of like, there's something inside you that you're worried about is something that I actually legitimately have inside me because like my father was not a good person. And now being a father of a 22 month old, I have to, I'm very cognizant of those things. But on the other side, I have all the teachings of my mom and, and my family and other parts of it. So that, that stuff is, it is incredibly relatable. And it, it's a really cool way to hear you explain this story. Um, it's something that I definitely want our listeners to check out. On the other side of things, I'm going through this, the book and seeing that like, there's no Marvel superheroes in this first volume. And it's really just this great reestablishment of who Shang-Chi is for himself when you and Darren are discussing, hey, this is what we want to do for the character, how much of it were you thinking of, okay, we go through this and then we want to start putting him against Wolverine and Captain America and Spider-Man and all that stuff? With that first series, we, we did want to feel him to feel like he had a place in the Marvel Universe. And we thought by making him the head of his, his dad's old organization, that would give him some prominence and set up some potential conflict between him and the other Marvel superheroes. And, and to be honest, like because of fan support, because the first two issues of 
the miniseries sold out, we got approved to do this ongoing series. And once we got on that, we're like, all right, now's the time to make them interact with all of our favorite superheroes. So at first I was actually like the very first versions of the outlines for the ongoing series that I submitted to Darren, I was having them team up with more street level heroes like like Daredevil, you know, and who I love. But Darren's like, let's go, let's go a little bigger. That's when we we decided to start off the first issue with Spider-Man and have Captain America show up in the second, you know, Wolverine show up in the third. And it's been great. His suggestion for that was the perfect suggestion. It was exactly the right way to go. I'm curious, just on a basic level, when you're writing these issues with a character that is famous, not just in his corner of the Marvel Universe, but at least to the reader as an incredible fighter, just at a basic level, how do you write, he fights really good? (laughs) <laughs> like now he goes and does the thing that he's really good at. How do, how do you do that? We've had to go through a negotiation, you know, about the fight scenes in general. Like in a lot of ways, it's not super realistic for a dude with just fists to go up against a guy in like high tech armor, you know, but it's the Marvel universe. So you kind of have to figure that stuff out. I think um, the way we're positioning him is he understands his like martial arts so well that he can figure out weak points. So even with like a high-tech suit of armor, he could figure out where the weak points are, right? And a lot of this is like just like DK. So there needs to be a fight scene here and here are the general beats of the fight scene. And then he just kind of takes it to another level, right? He kind of sells it by drawing it a certain way. So I'm thankful. I'm thankful that he has the skills to do that and keep that suspension of disbelief. He's awesome. Yeah. We've talked to Carla Pacheco, who's writing Spider-Woman right now. And Pere Perez is a martial artist and practices and so you know you see his knowledge of what he practices put into the choreography of that book and i think that's cool i i want to learn from dk like what is he doing to figure out like exactly how he wants to choreograph a fight because you know with these things i'm looking at a, a panel here where you know shang is leaning back and he's like dodging and then he's you know doing all this stuff and it's you know, even if you are not a big fan of, you know, sort of martial arts film, you've seen some, you absorb some of it, but like when you watch a lot of it and I've watched a lot, like you see certain things and techniques and like, I love good choreography, like fight choreography in a comic book. I mean, I think that's part of our culture now, right? Like even in movies that aren't necessarily martial arts movies, they'll bring in a martial arts choreographer to handle all the fight scenes. So it's got that flair to it. Honestly, I don't know what DK is doing. I think he's just good. I think he has like a super visual brain and he's able to kind of glom onto all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Like he understands the human body, right? Like, like most superhero artists at this level, they understand the human body so they can figure a lot of stuff out. Yeah. One of those things is like how an artist draws a younger character Oftentimes, you don't want to see a younger character just look like a small adult. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a difference to the way they move, just their shape and their size and the weight that they have on a page. And I think he he does that really well with the characters here. Like You see they all feel like they are who they are, which I, it sounds like a very simple thing, but it's it doesn't always work out on a page. No, no. I think it's super hard. And it's kind of a testament to how good he is that he makes it look easy, right? That's a mark of a, a good comic book artist is they make something really difficult look kind of effortless. I really love the emotional core to 
the first series that you did, the one we're talking about here. And I remember when we picked it up, we were reading these as they were coming out every month. And just sort of, it's that classic thing of, that I feel like is a hallmark of great writing or a great story, which is sort of simultaneously surprising and feels like nothing else could have ever happened. Um, like this is, of course, this is the story that needs to be told. Of course, these are the character elements that should be brought in for a character like this. And specifically regarding the the family story that's being told. Do you, I know you're still very much in the thick of it. And it's not like we're talking about ancient history here when it comes to the 2020 series. But do you have a grasp now of maybe what you learned from those five issues that now you're taking and applying in the ongoing nowadays? Yeah, I mean, I think emphasizing the relationships is exactly like how we're doing it, right? Like like the first five issues that, that miniseries was us kind of figuring out what the relationships are and figuring out what works and what doesn't within each relationship. And now we're trying to take that and double down on it in the new book. So even though like the covers feature Shang-Chi against a, a prominent Marvel superhero, we really still want the emotional core of the story to be between him and his siblings. This conflict between people who really love each other, but might have different ways of seeing the world and seeing their place in the world. In the collection, there's a, a character guide, which is really cool for anybody who who's, I don't know if it's on Marvel Unlimited. I don't think it's part of there. So Buy your books, everybody. Go get them, whether they're digital or print. Um, but you get you get great bonuses. I love just like the character studies, the sketches, the descriptions. When when you're putting these together with DK with Darren, how many iterations are you going through specifically for these characters because they become so important because they are lasting through one series into another, and you're you're building it. You're building mythology for a character, and which in essence then becomes part of the Marvel universe. With the character descriptions, we did go through a few iterations. Darren and I went through a few iterations. But for some of those sketches, like, DK kind of got it right at the beginning. Like, like some of those, that, that was like his first draft. And we're just like, that, that looks great. That looks perfect. Let's run with that one. <laughs> and even the other ones, like Sister Hammer, I think the only thing we changed was, if I'm remembering correctly, was, was the tattoo on her forehead. We were trying to figure out what that should be. So I ended up talking to my son's Mandarin teacher about it. And she gave me some pointers because, you know, my, I have like the Mandarin of like a three-year-old. So, um, but that again is sort of because of the talent of DK, right? He's, he's able, in a lot of these things, he's able to kind of get it on either the first or the second try. It just came to mind for me. This isn't necessarily something that I'd have much of a grasp on. Certainly not when it comes to this, but I, I was curious. It came to mind. I recently, maybe a couple of years ago, I read the novel, The Three-Body Problem, which is a Chinese science fiction novel that was translated by the writer Ken Liu. And there's a postscript to that book that Ken Liu writes about the process of translating that story. And something that was extremely fascinating to me was his discussion in that sort of essay about the essential differences between... Chinese storytelling in general at large and how it differs from Western storytelling or American storytelling and the linear nature is different, things like that. 
again, this is just sort of a shot in the dark, but I, I was curious if that sort of thing interests you, if that sort of, because China and the locales play a big role in the, the series that we're talking about here, is that something that you've ever thought of when it comes to your storytelling, when it comes to your work, playing with those ideas, playing with those different styles of storytelling on the most basic essential level? Yeah, this is actually something. So I teach at Hamlin University as part of their MFA program. I teach other people who are interested in, in writing for children and young adults, right? And most of the people on staff are like novelists and poets, and I'm one of the few comic book people. But this is actually something that we've talked about in that program. We've talked about how the underlying structure of Western stories is, is actually different from Eastern stories. You know, like, like for most Western stories, they kind of follow that same shape that you learn in high school English. But Eastern stories often are, are structured in more of a, like a circular way almost, right? Where, where you end up having the same themes, the same motifs show up over and over and over again. And they're not, there isn't always an identifiable climax. So we, we've talked about that. I think for the superhero work that I do, I generally try to follow the Western model in terms of the underlying structure, because I feel like it's sort of embedded into the language of superheroes, right? But we still do try to introduce little Eastern elements. I think in issue five, which I, I don't think I can spoil yet of the ongoing series, there is a moment there where we were trying to make feel a little bit more Eastern, but the general structure is still that same, you know, setup, inciting incident, rising action, climax, falling action. I love this discussion. And I also simultaneously apologize because you're literally a professor on it. And I'm like not even in kindergarten when it comes to these kind of things. Anyway, that's just fascinating. That's really, really, really interesting. I love that discussion. I think that's a challenge, right? Like how do you take a more Eastern sensibility about story structure and translate it in a way where it's compelling for an audience that grew up on Western stories? I don't know if I mean, maybe there are people out there who crack that nut, but I definitely haven't yet. But it's it's an interesting problem to try to solve, for sure. Um, I want to dive into a second volume a little bit more. Uh, we've talked about some of the superheroes that show up. You know, we're always got to find ways, make sure somebody who doesn't, mm, I don't know about this character. Look, it's got Captain America. It's got uh, Spider-Man. It's got Wolverine. You've got a little bit of MODOK in there and you're bringing in some new characters. Can you tell us a little bit about the creation of Lady Iron Fan and uh, the new sister staff who she's a really cool character. I, I think we've only, Tucker and I have only read through issue three and that's the issue where she's introduced, but she's a cool mutant character who's also a family member. Um, I really dug her. Oh, awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for reading all that. Lady Iron Fan is actually based on a like an old mythological Chinese character named Princess Iron Fan who shows up in this novel called Journey to the West, which is like one of the pillars of, of Chinese literature. And I always just thought she was like the original mythical character was awesome because she fought with fans, you know, and, and I thought it was great. So I wanted to introduce something like that in the Marvel Universe, which is why she shows up in issue number two. For uh, the new sister staff, it's all part of like making Shang-Chi feel like he's a part of the Marvel Universe, right? We wanted to have some kind of overlap between his mythos and X-Men. So X-Men was like the biggest thing in the world when I was a kid reading Marvel comics. And I remember like the Avengers were just not what they are now when I was a kid. Same. I get it. I didn't read any right? Avengers books as a kid. 
Yeah, I, it was all about the X-Men. So I've always wanted to find a way of, of bringing the X-Men into Shang-Chi and, and Sister Staff is the way to do it. But I'm excited about what we're, we have coming up as well. Like issue number four is going to have the Fantastic Four in it, of course, because it's issue four. And then we have <laughs> Iron Man coming in in uh, issue five and Thor in issue six. As Ryan mentioned a little bit earlier, like obviously this is an enormous time for this character for the mantle that this character holds amidst the Marvel universe. A lot of eyes are on Shang-Chi, the name Shang-Chi, certainly more than ever. Is that exciting to you to be the person who's telling the story in the comics at such a crucial moment for this character? Is that, does that feel like a lot of pressure? Is it some sort of strange mixture of both? Well, like that, that must be a little crazy. What's it like? Yeah, strange mixture of both is about right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a testament to, to Marvel's place in our culture now right like i don't know shang chi was not a i don't even know he i don't think he was a b-list character right he was like c or d-list when i was a kid and for him to be featured so prominently and to have so much interest around him is great it's amazing but at the same time i think because he was a little bit obscure you know a couple decades ago most people don't know much about him so there is a responsibility that comes with that but it's awesome like i just think if you had told me when I was in junior high or when I was in high school that most people in America would know who like Rocket Raccoon was, <laughs> I just wouldn't have believed you. It's like a completely different era right now. Yeah, it's wild. I went into Target the other week and there was just a wall of Shang-Chi. Like you could buy the 10 rings from the film. There was action figures and like all the stuff. And I was like, we are blessed. What a time to be alive. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Uh, Gene, thank you so much for, for coming on the show, chatting about Shang-Chi. And yeah, everybody, check out the limited series. Get in on the ongoing series. Read it wherever you can. Gene, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Tucker. Thank you so much, Gene. This is great. Thank you times a million once more to Gene for joining us for that conversation. One of the highlights in, in, in recent months. I really, really enjoyed breaking down all the Shang-Chi action with Gene alongside so much more going and exploring the Marvel Universe with an expert, great writer. Yeah. That's a wrap for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pulis Audio Development Manager. And when the lights go out, Brad just <laughs> falls into a puddle and cries. Uh, he would not survive dark. dark yeah. Ages. And, and, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, Brad. That's all right, Brad. We love you, man. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. Your universe.